beliefs and basic Christian beliefs. We're getting back to the basics. We'll be going through basic Christian beliefs and then through uh, uh, some advice on Christian living and, uh, and then some advice on sharing your faith with others. And then we'll get back into uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians and our, our survey through the uh, entire Bible. And, uh, and so today I'm going to be talking about the fact that we were created by God. We didn't evolve from apes or from subhumans. We were created by God. And so we'll be talking about that uh, today. And so let's, uh, if you open, you can open up to John chapter 1. That's probably the first passage I'll be reading from today. And, uh, and as you turn in there, we'll go to the Lord in prayer one more time that he anoints uh, the, the preaching of the word. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we love you, Lord. And uh, we love your word. And uh, we just pray that it would be your word that would be proclaimed today. That we would not be led astray by the lies and the fake news of this world. But that we would uphold your truth. We would believe your truth. And we would live your truth through the power of the Holy Spirit and for your glory. And so I pray, Lord, that you would anoint me with your spirit to proclaim your truth. So that I would not lead anyone astray. I pray you'd open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word and then uh, empower us to apply these truths to our lives. May we live uh, as people who are created in your image and though fallen, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, lion of the tribe of Judah. So may your love and your power be upon us to live lives of obedience and to be the spiritual warriors that you've called us to be in the midst of this cosmic battle for the souls of mankind. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, so last week we're talking about basic Christian beliefs. We talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, that the one true God exists throughout all eternity as three equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now we're going to be talking about creation by God. You can see in the mainline Christian denominations, you know, just you know, the, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Anglicans and stuff, obviously the Reformers in the 1500s saw that the Roman Catholic Church, had, they were blending pagan beliefs along with biblical beliefs and leading people astray. And so in the 1500s, you had the Protestant Reformation, kind of a back-to-the-Bible movement. And, uh, but then after atheistic evolution began to gain popularity with, for instance, uh, writings such as uh, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, then all of a sudden you started seeing some of the mainline Protestant churches start thinking, okay, well, maybe man evolved. Science has proven man evolved from, from subhuman creatures. And, uh, and so we'll blend the Bible with evolution. And then one thing led to another, and before you knew it, the mainline denominations were denying that Jesus was God incarnate. They were denying that salvation is only through faith in Jesus. They were denying that the Bible is God's word. And now we're seeing that creep into the evangelical church. By evangelical, that's the portion of the church that claims we still believe the Bible is God's word, without error, 
and we will build our faith in Christ upon that. Okay? And uh, now this, this uh, belief in man's wisdom, it's not really science, it's scientism. Turning science into a religion. Now this is creeping into evangelicalism. And so we see some of uh, our leading professors training so-called evangelical ministers, our future ministers, saying that, oh, there's, there's confusion in the gospel authors, but they got the main gist correct and things of that. So they look, if the Bible's without errors, there's, there's no confusion in it. And, uh, but we're now seeing leading evangelicals starting to become theistic evolutionists, both in the BioLogos movement, also in William Lane Craig's latest book, uh, the quest for the historical Adam. We don't have to search for Jesus. We don't have to search for Adam. They're right there in the Bible. Okay? And when you get guys who claim to be Bible-believing Christians, but then question in which parts of the Bible we should accept, and maybe we need to look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis as either mythology or mytho-historical, where we can pick and choose what's historical and what's mythological. And... Um, uh, once we start doing that, I don't think we can really claim to be evangelical Christians anymore. And, um, and that's what we're facing today. And so I, I think it's real important that there are, there are believers who uh, are really trusting Jesus for salvation and they're just confused on the issue and they, they kind of think that God used evolution. That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Amen. Okay. And um, so, and I'll tell you, I, I have more confidence, or I should say, I'm displeased less with a C.S. Lewis who came out of atheism. He was an atheistic evolutionist who, when he became a Christian, still believed in evolution, at least until late in his life. Uh, I'm more pleased with a guy, a Christian like that, than Christians who start out Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Bible Christians, and as time goes on, they start chipping away at those views. And then all of a sudden, they become a, you know, they go from, you know, literal creation, you know, some of you might be old earth creationists, I'm a, I believe in six-day creation. And, um, uh, but they go move to old earth creationism, and now some of them are moving into theistic evolution and believing that God used evolution and um, so I've got real real concerns about this and uh, I don't think I don't think the Christian church was misled for 1800 years until, until Charlie Darwin showed us up and then showed us that we need to reinterpret the first two books uh, the first two chapters of Genesis in fact, even the first 11 chapters of Genesis, since if you believe the fossil record reports the history of life on Earth, then you're going to deny the global flood uh, as well as literal creation. So whatever the case, what does the Bible teach? If, if we are going to be solid biblical Christians, we are going to uphold the 66 books of the Bible as God's word. And we're going to test everything else with that, okay? Let me tell you, um, when I began in apologetics, probably around 1990 when I started the Institute of Biblical Defense, 
and I, and I began to take debates on college campuses and stuff like that. Uh, it was the non-believing people, non-believers, who would make fun of Christians for basing everything on the Bible. You hear like the recent finds of scientists or whatever, and or recent economic theories and all this other stuff, and you, we tested with the Bible. It used to be the non-believers would make fun of us for doing that all the time. But now I get, I get made fun of right now by some of my believing colleagues for testing everything with the Bible. And they, they act like, well, with the wisdom of man, especially in the realm of science, maybe we need to reinterpret um, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And I'm not bo- on board with that. I, you know, but it's like Paul says, let, let God be true and every man a liar. You just picture yourself in a room with a hundred people and they're all mocking you and laughing at you and because you believe that God created the universe out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Okay? Are you strong enough to stand and say, hey, go ahead and laugh? Go ahead and laugh. Mock me. Maybe even kick me out of my job if you want. Maybe imprison me someday. Maybe even put me to death. But as long as I have breath, I will serve him and I will proclaim his name. He is good, but he is powerful. And, um, and so we need, if we're going to proclaim the name of Jesus, um, I don't think we could just start saying, hey, anytime the wise of this world find some new theory, we need to reinterpret the Bible. Uh, that's not Bible-based Christianity. That's not really evangelical anymore. That's why I'm the president of the International Society of Christian Apologetics. We're fighting that. And, um, and it's, not, it's not like we're fighting the liberal churches or we're fighting the world. We're fighting bro- brothers in the Lord who are constantly watering things down. And... Um, you know, I, I mean, it just, I'll hear Christian brothers and sisters say, oh, I really like this, this, this preacher or this apologist. And I'll be like, yeah, that's good. But in the back of my mind, I'll be like, should I tell them what we talked about last time we had breakfast together? You know, because this watering down is going on. And, um, but the Bible teaches that God alone, the triune God is eternal. And then he created everything else. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. We all know Genesis 1-1, the start of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning, John knew, you know, when he chose those words in the Greek, he knew immediately people would be thinking about the start of the Hebrew Old Testament. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through the Word, and without him nothing was made that was made. Okay? So there's the Creator, the three-person God. There's the Creator, and then there's everything else, which is his creation. Okay? 
And, um, and there's perversions of his creation, which are called evil, okay? Uh, but God created everything uh, that exists in itself. He created it out uh, of uh, nothing. Now, John, he picked the word word, logos in the Greek, and there's a reason for that. I'm sure he was aware of the teachings of Philo out of Alexandria, Egypt, which Alexandria, Egypt became the new Athens, Athens from Greece, the new headquarters around the globe for philosophy, the wisdom of man. Well, there was a Jewish philosopher, Philo, one of the most famous philosophers at that time, and he was blending Greek philosophical, somewhat Platonic thought, the thought of Plato, with Old Testament Judaism, with the Hebrew uh, Jewish faith. And, um, and so there was a lot of talk, even among the Jews, about this Greek concept of the Logos. And they couldn't understand the ancient Greek philosophers says, it's, is reality being or is it becoming? There's some things that just remain the same, and then there's a world of, of flux, a world of change. So which is it? You know, some would say, well, reality is being, so all movement and all change and all differentiation, that's all an illusion. Everything is one being. Others would say, no, everything is change. Heraclitus would say, no one steps in the same river twice. And, um, and so there was this big battle going on. Well, eventually guys like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle won out, and they said, there's, there's both reality is being and becoming. I go through a lot of changes. I'm still Phil Fernandez. So there's a human being named Phil Fernandez who goes through a lot of changes. But the whole universe is like that. Okay? Uh, now, ultimately, everything can be traced back to divine being, the God who created everything that exists out of nothing. And... Uh, but they, they couldn't understand, well, how do we understand this world of flux, this world of change? Because the ancient Greeks did not believe in the existence of this one personal God that created us in his image, they didn't know if they should be able to trust their senses and to trust their reasoning abilities. And so they arbitrarily came up with the Logos doctrine. They said, there's this rational mind. They thought it was non-personal. I don't know how a rational mind could be non-personal. But there's this rational mind, we'll call it the Logos. We get our word logic from it. And the Logos enlightens our minds to look at the world of change and it helps us to make sense of the world of change and find truths from the world of change. So they arbitrarily just inserted that Logos doctrine because they didn't have the Christian God. Okay? We know, we look, we're rational beings because we were created in the image of a rational God who made the world in a way that makes sense so that through reason we could find out about the world in which we live. Okay? Uh, that's, that, was, that formed the foundation for modern science. All the founders of modern science were Bible-believing Christians. And so we could trust our senses. We could trust our thinking abilities because we were created by a thinking God. Okay? And so the Greeks had this Logos doctrine. So then this, this fisherman, who you know, was a teenager, now he's getting a little older there. Not as old as I think some people. I actually date John's Gospel to the 50s AD. You can read about that in my redating the, the New Testament in um, 
by hijacking the historical Jesus book. And, um, but John says, in the beginning was the Logos. He's saying the Greeks are right. The Logos exists, but they're wrong. The Logos is not a non-personal force. The Logos is God, the second person of the Trinity, and he created all of creation. And then in verse 14, the Logos became flesh and dwelled for a while among us. And so the triune God created the, the heavens and the earth. Uh, you know, it seems that with salvation and creation, it seems like the Father planned it, the, the Son performed it, and then the Holy Spirit, like in Genesis 1, designed it, or uh, the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us by giving us the new birth. But all three persons of the Trinity are involved there in the, um, in the creation. Look at Colossians 1, 15 to 17. This is the book that we just covered, Colossians 1, 15 to 17. And it's talking about Jesus, and it says, He is the image of the invisible God. Why? Because he's God the Son, become a man. The firstborn, or the ruler over all creation. Why? For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He holds together creation. He not only created us and gave us our beginning, he sustains us in existence. Okay? And, uh, but he's the creator even of the invisible realm. Even of the angelic beings. It's not like we're going to be, you know, a, a million years from now, be in heaven with the triune God and then find out, oh, we didn't know there was another God somewhere else who created another universe somewhere else. And maybe that God's bigger than our God. No. It doesn't get any bigger than our God. Our God is pure, infinite existence. Okay? Everything else that exists got its existence from the infinite, eternal being. Okay? And um, God is existence. We have existence because God gave it to us. It's just like God is love. We have love because God gave it to us. Okay? And uh, so, uh, but here we're told that even, even over the angelic realm, that God created the heavens and the earth, the visible and the invisible, okay? And, and we're being told by others, no, you don't need to believe in God because of evolution. And he, here's how, let me boil down how that argument really goes. We don't have to believe in the who, that's God, the creator, because we figured out the how. We don't have to believe in the creator because we figured out how creation got here. How everything got here. How did it get here? Well, it evolved. What are you talking about? Evolved from what? You've got to start with nothing. From nothing, nothing comes. Okay? Um, but they'll act like we don't have to believe in the who because we know the how. Well, Push the evolutionist on it, like Ben Stein pushed Richard Dawkins. How 
did everything get here? Evolution. Well, how did evolution occur? Well, the big debate, sometimes we, some think it was mutations. No. Mutations only garble the already existing code. It adds no new genetic information. So where did single-celled animals get the genetic information for teeth and hair color? Amen. Okay? Mutations aren't the answer. Well, so, so Dawkins is basically saying, well, we believe in evolution. We just don't know how it occurred. Oh, so you don't know the how. Let me tell you something. If you don't know how we got here, you need to go back to the who, because that's the only game in town. All right? And it's the same with knowledge. How can man know? I don't know how man knows. I've read epistemology, different philosophical theories of knowledge, and uh, my head spins. I don't, know, I don't think anybody, even, even Michael Martin, the, uh, America's leading philosophical atheist that I debated in 1997, the late Michael Martin, and um, he even mentioned me in his obituary. I thought that was real nice of them, but, but even him... He starts out where we don't know how man knows. So I don't have a theory of knowledge, so I'm just going to move on from there and attack belief in God. No, dude, if you can't explain why man can know anything, then you've got to just stay there. You can't just move on. But see, we Christians don't have to explain how we know, because we know the who. We were created by an infinite knower in his image, so we're finite knowers, so we know, even if we can't figure out how exactly it is that we know. Okay? See, that, that one statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that explains everything. That explains everything. And then you bring in Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of mankind. Okay, now I see why I'm in the mess I'm in. And then you come to the Gospels. And you see how we get out of that mess. Amen. It's a manger. It's a carpenter. Amen. It's a wooden cross. And it's an empty tomb. <coughs> Jesus is Savior. But, um, but no, so, so, so people are acting like, oh, they know so much and this and that. Let me tell you, the origin of the universe... Everything that has a beginning needs a cause. Okay? Um, things don't just pop into existence totally out of nothing, totally without a cause. Everything that has a beginning needs a cause. The universe had a beginning. Virtually everybody agrees now, because I'm not, I don't even hold it a Big Bang, but Big Bang cosmology says the universe is expanding in all directions as we move forward in time. So if we go backwards in time, the universe will get smaller and smaller until it's a point of infinite density. If you're talking about something physical, it can't be infinitely small. It can't be infinitely dense. That's just another way of saying there was a time it wasn't there. Okay? Now, I don't hold the Big Bang cosmology, but all we need is the second law of thermodynamics, energy deterioration. Though the amount of, of energy in the universe remains constant, it becomes less and less usable. So we are running out of usable energy. So unless God intervenes, uh, the universe is winding down. It's going to eventually die, which means if you go backwards in time, it had to be wound up. It had to have a beginning. Okay? Now, there's philosophical arguments for the beginning of the universe to show that the, the concept of infinite time is absurd, 
Uh, I don't want to bore you with that. It gets into infinite set theory, a lot of mathematical stuff. And, uh, but just believe me, we don't even need science to prove that the universe had a beginning. But if something had a beginning, it couldn't cause its own existence. That would be absurd for the universe to pre-exist its own existence in order to bring its own existence about. You can't pre-exist your own existence, okay, to cause your own existence. And so, um, and so basically, if the universe had a beginning, it had to have a cause. And by the way, if the universe is all of nature, then you've run out of natural causes by definition. So whoever caused the universe to come into existence has to be a supernatural cause. It transcends um, uh, the natural realm. The design we find in the universe. You can look small, you can look big, and you see evidence of design throughout the universe. Okay, uh, Looking small, uh, specified complexity. What that means is that that's the highly complex information found in all living things. So that in a single cell, the basic unit of life, there's enough genetic information to fill 20,000 volumes of encyclopedia. Okay? I don't care how many explosions you have in a print shop, you're never accidentally going to produce one volume of encyclopedia. You've got to get 20,000 by chance. That's why evolutionists need all this time, all these billions of years, just to make their, their views sound almost reasonable. Okay? It's like the, the late Dwayne Gish, a young earth creationist, who was a PhD scientist, he said, look, when... Uh, when a frog turns into a prince instantaneously, we call that a fairy tale. But when a frog turns into a prince over a period of a few billion years, we call that good science. What he's saying is, it's still, it's still a fairy tale. It's just longer and more boring, but it's still a fairy tale. Okay, But that's specified complexity, the highly complex information found in a single-celled animal. It takes intelligence to bring that kind, 20,000 volumes of encyclopedias worth of information. I mean, if I was, uh, if I was eating cereal back at, uh, back at uh, Pat's desk back there, alphabet cereal, and, um, and he walked in and he looked at, the, he looked at uh, the desk and it said, Raiders rule, Seahawks stink. Okay, and so you know he he might get mad at me. I say, look, dude, dude, I just I'm just minding my own business, eating alphabet cereal, and I spilled a little bit. Okay, it's not my fault. What is he going to say? He's going to say, you liar, because there's there's so much information there. Okay, that there had to be well, it's in Seattle country, they wouldn't call it intelligence to be a Raider fan, but just. Just, 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 just hang with me on this illustration. And uh, they said, there's got to be a certain amount of intelligence to make that message. It doesn't happen by chance. You got 20,000 20, volumes of encyclopedia in a single-celled animal. Now, Michael Behe out of Lehigh University, uh, genuine scientist, and he found what's called irreducible complexity. See, Charles Darwin thought that the molecules, uh, uh, that you know, molecule, the molecules in our body, they look, 
they, they look, it makes us look complex, but it's just a bunch of simple molecules thrown together. But we were never able to get on the submolecular level. Now we can get on the submolecular level, and we find entities on the submolecular level that are as complicated as spaceships or computers, but they're irreducibly complex, which means they can't be any simpler. It's complicated as a computer or a spaceship, but you make them any simpler, just one part gets removed or one part doesn't work, and the whole thing shuts down. It can't evolve into something else. In other words, they had to be created that way. Okay? And, um, and so that's looking small. Then you can look big. The anthropic principle from the Greek word anthropos for man that scientists learned. They, scientists coined the, the phrase, the anthropic principle. They just said as we examine the universe, it looks like the whole entire universe was fine-tuned. Somebody stacked the deck. The whole universe was fine-tuned to support human life on the planet Earth. Then, of course, these scientists said, but wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. That sounds too much like Genesis 1 and 2. So they came up with their own anthropic principles, which tries to explain why the universe appears like it was fine-tuned for human life on the planet Earth, but that's really not the case. Let me tell you something. That is not science. If science, with science, you study the world of the senses, that's what science is, knowledge attained through the five senses. You study the world of the senses, and if it appears to be one way, and you don't have any evidence, any evidence of the senses to go against it, you go with it. So the only real scientific conclusion that can be drawn from this is that, okay, well then, and science deals with probabilities. It's always open to testing, despite what Anthony Fauci says. It's always open to testing, Okay, um, you know, if if we didn't allow science to be open to testing, then then um, Einstein's relativity would have never replaced Newtonian physics. Okay, and so, um, uh, but but whatever the case, uh, you're supposed to accept what the evidence tells. So the the conclusion would be, well, science shows us that the entire universe was probably um, fine tuned for the purpose of supporting human life on the planet Earth. Well, duh. Just read the first two chapters of Genesis. Okay? And so sometimes science, every once in a while, starts catching up with God's word. Um, but so the anthropic principle tells us that the universe was designed for life. Uh, you, you look at the laws of nature. Well, Thomas Aquinas, long before evolution... Uh, Thomas Aquinas said, when you see the mindless things of nature moving towards the same goals time and time again, that shows that there has to be a mind governing nature. Okay? So when acorns grow up to be oak trees and not apple trees, there's got to be an intelligent mind governing uh, nature. And, uh, and so you, you can look, I mean, you just look at the earth. It's part of the anthropic principle, but, the, you know, change the chemical composition and the far reaches of the universe, and there'd be no chance of life on the planet Earth. Uh, but even within our own solar system, if the Earth was a little bit closer to the sun, we would all fry. If we were a little bit further from the sun, uh, we'd all freeze to death. And the sun's got to be the right size and the right shape and the right distance from Earth. The Earth's got to be the right size, the right shape. The right distance from the sun, it's got to 
revolve the right way. It's, it's got to rotate the right way. And then we even need the moon with its, its revolutions around the earth to control the tides. We need Jupiter. Jupiter is like the ultimate offensive lineman protecting his quarterback, planet Earth, from asteroid hits. Asteroids coming towards the planet Earth almost always get caught up in the gravitational pull of Jupiter and either get smashed on Jupiter's sur surface or break up long before they get there. Okay? It's, um, you know, I, I would not be surprised that if you, to, to find a planet, if there was a planet anywhere else in the universe where human life could thrive, I wouldn't be surprised if you'd have to have an, an, an exact replica of our solar system. So forget about just finding a planet, our shape, and the proper distance from a sun, the shape of our sun. You need a whole lot going, more going for you. By the way, I, when I did, used to debate this on college campuses, my thesis was evolution needs God, but God doesn't need evolution. Okay. Evolution needs God, but God doesn't need evolution. I mean, you look at the assumptions of evolution. They assume that everything came into existence from nothing. Okay? So to get something from nothing, to get life from non-life, multi-celled animals from single-celled animals, animals with backbones from animals without backbones, and then the common ancestry of fish, reptiles, birds, mammals, and man... You know, that, that's probably, that was definitely the, the product of common design, not common, uh, common anatomy points to common design uh, and a common designer, not common ancestry. I mean, how are you going to go from uh, fish to reptiles and then to birds? All three of them have a different type of breathing mechanism. You got to go from, from gills and then to, to reptile lungs, which is a totally different design from bird lungs. Whatever's in between can't breathe. They can't breathe. They can't live long enough to evolve into something else. But all of this uh, violates known scientific laws and scientific theories. Okay? Life from non-life, that's a spontaneous generation. That's been disproven. Louis Pasteur did the work there. Um, and so... Uh, evolution itself. Now, when I go over all the unproven assumptions of evolution, I'm giving you the different stages of evolution. So I'm telling you evolution itself is an unproven assumption. So that's why I say evolution needs God, but God doesn't need evolution. If evolution occurred, you would still need a God to bring the universe from nothing, to bring life from non-life, to miraculously bring multi-celled animals from single-celled animals, to miraculously bring animals with backbones from animals without backbones, and to miraculously bring from fish, reptiles, birds, mammals, eventually man. You would, you would need God. God is the only way to rescue evolution. So evolution needs God. But once you acknowledge the existence of God, he could have used a wasteful method called over billions of years called evolution, a bloody, wasteful method. Or, if he felt like it, he could have created the universe in six literal days. Okay? And so, why, why should I embrace evolution? I, I think if God used evolution, you could actually accuse him of deception, because really, when everything's said and done, 
he covered his tracks. Okay? Um, see, evolution doesn't start out just seeking truth and then find, oh, we don't need God. It starts out, we don't want God, now let's argue from there. Okay? And um, if, uh, if you don't want the whole universe to come from God, the only alternative is nothing. That's what I like about, you know, one of my doctoral degrees is in philosophy, a branch of philosophy called philosophy of religion. And where scientists usually have to, not always, you've got theoretical physicists that are, might as well be writing, cosmologists might as well be writing sci-fi. But generally speaking, scientists are supposed to work with something um, and study something. Uh, philosophers can get paid to study nothing. And so you could become an expert on, you could be a philosopher and become an expert in nothing. And, um, and so I've learned over the years, I've learned a lot about nothing. Okay? And I'm proud of that. Um, let me, first off, nothing is nothing. Okay? Now you're probably thinking, man, that was, that was worth it, man. It's, I can go home. I now know nothing is nothing. Okay? Well, guess what? If nothing is nothing, nothing can do nothing. See, for something to do something, something has to actually exist with the power or the potential to do something. But if you're nothing, if you're not actual, if you're nothing, then you don't have any potential to do anything. Okay? Uh, I have more power than nothing. I remember explaining that to, to Buddhist students uh, from Japan in my classroom. They were saying that, that the Big Bang, you know, and I said, well, how did it, where did the Big Bang come from? And they said, it's a miracle. I said, no, you're not allowed to have miracles. You don't believe in God. You can't have miracles without a miracle working God. And, um, and they said, nothing. And I said, look, I can lift weights. I'm stronger. I'm more powerful than nothing. And they agreed. And, uh, but then I told them, I said, but nothing can't lift weights. You don't walk into a weight room and just see, oh, wow, 225 pounds being lifted up off the bench by nothing. Okay? So if I got more power than nothing, nothing has no power, and I had dirt in my hands and grass in my hands, and I said, yet I don't have the power to make the dirt and the grass. If I got more power than nothing, what makes you think nothing can make dirt and grass? And make this world in which we live. Nothing is nothing, therefore nothing can do nothing, therefore nothing can cause nothing. If the universe had a beginning, nothing isn't a candidate. That's why, by the way, that's the debate right now between atheistic evolution and, uh, and Christianity on the origin of the universe. Either you're a fool like us Christians, because we believe in the beginning a miracle-working God created the universe. And they, people laugh, oh, oh, that's so outdated. Oh, I feel sorry for you. And um, um, so you either believe in the beginning a miracle-working God created the universe or in the beginning nothing created the universe. Now you tell me who the fools are. Okay? But I tell you, you know when fools, you know, here's a, here's a formula. Here's a little secret formula I'll give you. You know how to make fools look like brilliant, geniuses, wise men? 
give them billions upon billions of dollars for their research, take over the media, take over the schools, okay? And then you'll make the wisest of people look like fools because you just keep reporting the same lies over and over and over again, okay? Don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. People can mock us. They can put us down, but, you know, we believe in one God, the creator of heavens and the earth. Never, ever be ashamed of that. But by the way, yeah, you know, everybody, the intelligent design movement arguing that life could not arrive on planet earth without intelligent design. Evolutionists tell you it's a failure, but actions speak louder than words. If it's a failure, how come so many evolutionists, leading evolutionists, are now embracing panspermia? Believing that uh, simple life forms came to Earth from outer space, either accidentally transported by intelligent beings, more, more than that, more likely than that, according to these evolutionists, it came accidentally, maybe on asteroids, okay? Why are they going to outer space to have the origin of simple life and then have it transported to Earth? Because deep down inside they know all the evidence of life evolving from non-life without intelligent intervention, it's impossible to have occurred on the planet Earth. And so now they're moving it back. So now I've had to go from my thesis being evolution needs God, but God doesn't need evolution. Now my argument is Aliens need God, but God doesn't need aliens. It, it, it's sad. I'm talking like Watson and Crick got the Nobel Prize for cracking the genetic code. Joseph Fletcher, Princeton scholar, um, uh, Richard Dawkins himself. It's this panspermia view. It's becoming more and more popular. And, um, and no, no. Um, uh, even if you want to push it off to aliens... Uh, aliens need God, but God doesn't need aliens. If aliens exist on another planet, somewhere in the universe, it, it'd be because God created them. Okay? Um, at the same time, God didn't have to create them. If God chose to put all intelligent life on this, apart from the you know, spiritual beings, the angelic realm, but put all intelligent life on a little speck, a little tiny planet called Earth, and then just create this huge, vast universe to show us how majestic and how powerful he is, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that big time. Now, I do think we're being visited by entities, but those entities are not from this dimension. They appear and disappear at will, and they mislead people by demoting Jesus and teaching New Age type thought. So I do think that there's a demonic um, deception that is going on. Uh, but evolution itself is an unproven assumption, even if you invoke aliens. Okay? You know, if 60 years ago, if somebody started talking about intelligent life on other planets, they call you a fool. Now, some of the world's leading thinkers uh, are promoting that. And, uh, but the origin of the universe, design. 
morality, the fact that we make moral choices. You know, people would say, well, I believe, I don't believe in, uh, in morality. I think each person decides. Well, then you can't condemn the actions of Adolf Hitler as wrong. By the way, anybody who says that, that there are no absolute moral laws, things that are right or wrong for all people at all times and all places, they will, they will contradict themselves when they get wronged. Okay? So you steal from a guy who says there's no such thing as right, right and wrong. You steal from him, he calls the police because he knows he was wronged. Okay? Uh, but people can say, well, no, each individual decides what is right and what is wrong for himself. Well, great. Uh, now you can't condemn the actions of Adolf Hitler as wrong. Because he did what he thought was right. So they might say, okay, well, no, not each individual. Each society determines what is right and what is wrong. Okay, but now the American society can't condemn the actions of Nazi Germany as wrong. We can't condemn the Taliban, their society. Moral reformers like Jesus or Martin Luther King Jr., they always have to be wrong because society's always right. No, when you want to condemn individuals and societies, you've got to go to a moral law above individuals and societies. And so some would say, well, maybe it's a world consensus. You really want to go there? The world consensus used to be a woman is just the property of a man. World consensus used to be that slavery is perfectly permissible. Just get used to it. So the world consensus is a poor track record, but even the people who deny moral absolutes, they're called moral relativists, they always try to protest and make the world a better place to live. They condemn the sins of the past and they try to build a better future. And so actions speak louder than words. When you don't, don't listen to a person, I don't believe in right and wrong, blah, blah, but don't even listen to it. Just look at their actions and watch them. And what you'll find is that most human beings appeal to a moral standard above all individuals, above all societies, above any world consensus, and because they try to build a better future, build a better world, they act like this, this uh, moral standard doesn't change with time. Well, you know what that tells us? If there's a moral law above all individuals, all societies, any world consensus, and it doesn't change with time, we need a moral lawgiver above all individuals, above all societies, above any world consensus, and the moral lawgiver doesn't change with time. Now, if that's not the God of the Bible, I don't know who it is. Okay? And, um, and you'll find with dealing with morality, these atheists will always climb up Mount Sinai to borrow some of the Ten Commandments from Moses to condemn God. Say, therefore, God doesn't exist. No, no, you're borrowing capital from the Christian worldview. And uh, uh, reason, our thinking ability. How does the evolutionist know our thinking ability works? They believe that our reason evolved from non-rational matter. That doesn't make change. Our reasoning ability didn't, didn't evolve from, from a mound of dirt. We were created in the image of a rational God. That's why we can trust human reason, human thinking. And, uh, uh, but you take the rational God out of the picture, okay, um, and there's no reason to trust our reason. We'd have to invent uh, the Logos doctrine all over again, just arbitrarily. Um, free will, okay? 
You know, if we have a soul and we make choices that are not biologically determined, then when somebody commits a crime, we can lock them up because they're responsible for their actions. But if you don't have a soul, if all your choices are biologically determined, then, you know, my, my body makes me hug people. Somebody else's body might make them slaughter innocent people. It's not their fault. So if you really want to, if you deny the human soul and human free will, you ought to close down all the prisons because people are not responsible for their actions. Um, human rights. Let me just say this. Uh, in a world without God, there are no human rights. Either all men are created equal and given inalienable rights by God of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or the alternative, nobody's arguing that all men have evolved equally. Okay? Um, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that in 1963 we took prayer to the public schools and 10 years later we started killing babies before they were born. There's a connection there. You want to kick God out of your schools? You want to kick God out of your culture? If God is dead, not only are truth, morality, and meaning dead, but man is dead too. Our value comes in the fact that we were created by God, the infinitely worthy God, and created in his image. You take God out of the picture, everything else falls. Guilt. At one time, I didn't even think guilt was a good argument for God until I started reading Sigmund Freud. It was an atheist. This guy spent hundreds of pages trying to explain away guilt. Guilt is our knowledge of sin. And we have guilty consciences. We know we've sinned. Okay? The, the best, the only adequate explanation for our guilt is that deep down inside, even if we sin and nobody's looking, we know that we've offended someone. Okay? Um... Persons are more important than things. Moral commands are things. So when you feel guilty, even if you sin and no one's there to watch you, uh, deep down inside you get guilty because you've sinned against at least one person. I would argue you've sinned against three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, meaning in life. If there's no... Life after death or punishment and rewards, it would be irrelevant whether you lived your life um, like Adolf Hitler and slaughtered innocent humans or um, like Corey Ten Boom and risked your life to defend innocent humans. A million years from now, everybody you influence for good or for bad will be long gone. Eventually, the whole universe is going to die. Non-existence waits everybody. The only way to capture true, lasting, eternal meaning is to acknowledge that we were created by God and we are responsible for our beliefs and our actions and there will be punishment and rewards. And the atheists like pointing out evil as evidence against God. Look, if there's no ultimate goodness, then there's no such thing as evil since evil can only exist um, as a perversion of that which is good. So evil actually argues for, for God and then, by the way, evil is a big problem, but it's not just a problem for the philosophy lecture halls. Evil is an existential problem. It's a problem of human existence. Real problems 
necessitate real solutions. And the only real solution I know to the problem of real evil is a real savior. The incarnation, God the Son becoming a man, the incarnation, death, resurrection, and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we'll be picking it up from there, but do not give on creation by God. Don't think we've got to, every time some smart aleck with a PhD degree teaching at some university slams uh, the word of God and calls it the wisdom of man, that's scientism. And right now, scientism is so close to being science fiction in so many different areas that it's just, in the end, it's going to be either you embrace God's word in the 66 books of the Bible or you embrace mythology and fairy tales. And so next week, we're going to talk about the Bible being the inspired, inerrant word of God so that we can say with Paul, let God be true and every man a liar. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I just pray, Lord, that we would all recognize that you exist, your Son exists, the Holy Spirit exists, and that you created us in your image so that human life is of infinite value. But then we fell. But you have provided salvation through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb who was slain, the one who died on the cross for our sins. So salvation can only be found through trusting in Jesus. And then you raised him from the dead to conquer death for us. And the day will come when he will return. And so I pray, Lord, that we would remain true to you and we would remain true to your word and that we would acknowledge that human beings are not mere molecules in motion. Human beings are not trash or objects that can just be controlled by uh, the elitists, the, the multi-billionaire people who want to play God themselves and want to replace you, that each life is of infinite value. And so I, I pray, Lord, that we acknowledge that you exist. We acknowledge that you are our creator. But we also acknowledge that the Bible is your perfect word. And we acknowledge that you sent your son to become one of us and to die on the cross for our sins and provide salvation for us. May we all trust in your son, the Lord Jesus, alone for salvation. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, May we live lives pleasing to you for your glory until that day when King Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, returns and takes his stand upon the earth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.